Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Hello, hi, and welcome. I'm Emma Gunn-Wardner, and you're listening to The Emma Gunn Show. Each week, I ask my guests to show me the world through their eyes, learning from their experiences, insights, and expertise. If you'd like to watch and listen to this episode ad-free, simply go to www.patreon.com forward slash The Emma Gunn Show now. She, yeah, she once didn't speak to me for a couple of days because we, we disagreed on what order you should put cream and jam on a scone. She asked me that one. Mm-hmm. Or scone. Scone or scone? I'm not even totally sure what the scone is. <laughs> it's just a fruity, doughy thing. Next time when I come here, I'm going to actually see London. I'm going to see what a scone is. Let's go for afternoon tea. Okay. Okay. I used to think that I was angry at other things and other people and other situations. Ultimately, I had to sit back and realize, oh, no, I'm angry with myself because nobody's forcing me to muzzle myself. Nobody's forcing me to be inauthentic. I'm doing that. And it's exhausting. And I'm so glad I'm learning this right now because my daughter is about to turn 13. I am truly delighted to welcome to the podcast Vicky Sai, the founder of best-selling beauty brand, Tatcha. It's truly incredible to have you on the show. Welcome. It's my honor. (laughs) Your story is a really fascinating one. And as soon as I read your bio, I knew that I had to have you on the show because you worked as a Wall Street trader. You were at Ground Zero on 9-11. You have an MBA from Harvard Business School. And while working tirelessly to build a career in business, decided instead to choose happiness. You not only chose happiness, but you also chose happiness with no plan of how to achieve it. (laughs) However, that search for that plan and inspiration appeared when you were traveling. Travels that led you to Kyoto, Japan's cultural and spiritual center, and perhaps one of the most significant moments in your life, which we can discuss, and career, meeting a geisha. What you learned there from the geisha skincare rituals and practices became the foundation for Tatcha, which has been recognized by WWD as one of the 45 most powerful beauty brands in the world. That's not an insignificant achievement. And yes, you have created a formidable and hugely successful brand, so successful it was acquired by Unilever in 2019. But you fulfilled that dream of choosing happiness when you married work and purpose. Because in your role as a founder, you champion underrepresented women in business, established the Beautiful Futures program, which supports girls' education with every touch of purchase. And you're a board member of Room to Read, which has funded seven million days of school for girls in Asia and Africa. So it is therefore a delight to have you on the show and get to know you. It's my honor. That's the nicest introduction I've ever gotten. Right. Well, we'll clip that bit out and we will use that (laughs) in promo. Um, It is really interesting to get to know you because it is such an incredible story. And it does feel like a story of perseverance. It feels like a story of following your gut instinct. Mm -hmm. So what keeps you going when you want to give up? Because I'm guessing that at some points during those or at some point during the journey, 
it would have been easier just to stop and quit. But you didn't. You kept going. Yeah. So many times. <laughs> so many times. What keeps me going? Um, there is this word in Japanese, ikigai. And it means that thing that gets you out of bed every morning. It's your passion. It's your fire. And um, knowing that we got to create a company that lifts women and makes women feel more whole and worthwhile and beautiful inside out and then supports future, future generations of women, it makes me feel like I'm a part of something bigger than myself. And so, I mean, no day is that bad. You get through it. And I suppose you, we had a dinner mm -hmm. uh, a few nights ago. And one of the first questions you asked the assembled group of people was, is anyone here from the corporate world? Has anyone worked in corporate? And I guess that's a significant part of the story as well. Yeah. Knowing that, yes, this might be difficult, but that's my alternative and I don't want to go there. <laughs> that, yeah, I spent the first decade of my career in the corporate world. And um, I think none of us wants to feel like a cog in a wheel. None of us wants to feel like we spent the waking hours of our day doing something that really didn't matter to anyone and didn't make a difference in the world. Mm -hmm. So um, when I took the leap and said I, I choose happiness, it meant that I wanted to spend the waking hours of my life doing something that felt meaningful um, and that would matter to, to me and to other people. Mm. Can you tell me about that moment, how it appeared. Yes. So it was 2008. Um, I had tried a lot of different jobs. I had this really, really pretty resume. And the prettier the resume got, the more empty I felt. And one day I woke up and um, these, these words came out of my mouth. And it was a voice that I guess was mine, but I'd been suppressing it for so long, mm. especially as the, the kid of, of immigrants. Everything is about duty and making your parents' sacrifices worthwhile and following this path. And then I woke up and the words, I choose happiness, came out. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I got up and I felt like somebody else had taken over my body and I wrote a resignation letter. And then I drove into the office and I told um, the founder of that company that I respected what he was doing but that this was where I part. And I gave him the resignation letter. I took my chair, because it was the oneness thing that I owned, this is Herman Miller chair, and I wheeled it out to my car downstairs. And I was so happy in this process. And the second I got downstairs, I started bawling. And um, then I couldn't get my chair into my car. So now I'm crying and I'm wrestling with this chair. And then I look up and I realize everybody in the office can see me crying and wrestling with my chair. <laughs> and I thought, well, that was not the exit I was hoping for. <laughs> um, did you get the chair in the car? I had to call somebody <laughs> to come downstairs and help me get the chair in the car. And then when I got home... I was like, what do I do with myself now? It's a Tuesday morning and I'm unemployed. And my husband lives in another city because he hasn't come here yet. I just moved to San Francisco for this job. And this voice in me was like, we're going to go eat. And I went to this French restaurant and I ordered a hamburger and a glass of wine at like 10 o'clock in the morning. And I remember sitting there thinking, what are we doing? And this other voice is like, oh, we're about to get happy. And that's where it all started. See, that to me is so incredible because you're talking about two voices that are used to be in conflict perhaps, or mm. one was like, shh, hush now you, but something happened. Did you reach the end of your rope? Did you just think, I just can't do this anymore? Like in terms of your mental health at the time, were you feeling down or struggling? Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't realize it, actually. Um, I've done a lot of inner work on myself since then. Mm -hmm. I think going to Japan and studying with Zen monks and, you know, meditation and it, I'm doing a lot of work. Um, mm -hmm. What I know now is that when I was at Ground Zero 9-11, um, that day, I fell asleep. Like I went when I finally got back to my apartment and my husband came home, I immediately fell asleep. And I guess your brain protects you. In, in really traumatic situations. Um, but then I had to keep going back down to, uh, to ground zero every single day for work. 
And it was my only view was the hole. And I had to watch them excavate the hole every day. And then my husband was getting sicker every day. And so what I know now, but I did not know then, is that I learned to disassociate because I didn't want to be there anymore. But I didn't feel like I could move my body out of there. So my mind was like, well, that's fine, but we're leaving. And so I spent the next um, decade completely disassociated. And the good news is I didn't really feel a lot of the hard stuff. The bad news is I didn't feel anything ever. Mm. I didn't feel anything on my wedding day. I barely felt anything the day that my daughter was born. And so that voice that that came up when I said I choose happiness was the beginning of um, my mind and body trying to stitch itself back together. But it felt it felt really strange for a long time before I understood what was going on. It's really confusing, I think, when you navigate the world and you realize that that's been your experience. I've had something similar, not the same, but mm-hmm. you, do, you look back and you think, God, no wonder it was so, no wonder it hurt mentally, physically and emotionally. Yeah. Because yeah. it was just so, it's rough. Trauma is fascinating. Um, it does sit in the body, it sits mm-hmm. in the mind, it sits in the spirit, but I also think it's a catalyst for growth. Mm-hmm. So um, I've grown a lot. Yeah. And, and it can be easy in those moments to be defined by that trauma mm. and for that almost to become your identity. But yeah. uh, I say to when I'm talking about what happened with me, I say it was like the fire in me had gone out. Yeah. And then there was one tiny little ember. Oh. And that one went, not today, bitch, <laughs> and just like lit up. And that was and it was that that like got me into therapy and was yeah. like, right, we're going to change all of yeah. these things. So I don't know necessarily where that comes from. So maybe this is a tough question to ask mm. you. But did you feel like there was a, like maybe you were turning black and white, but there was one pixel of color and that pixel went, we're, gonna, we're not going to do this anymore. Mm. We're coming back. Mm. I do. I do. I think it's the person we are as a child. Mm. Before the hardness of life, you know, comes down on you, before you have, you know, the really big traumas, I think we're all born as souls that are courageous and beautiful and free and full of life. And I don't think that 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 person that you are as a kid goes away. Um, And then every now and then it sprouts up and it's like, I quit. (laughs) Let's get a burger on a Tuesday morning. With a big glass of champagne. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I never thought about it as being the child, but that actually makes it actually all the more beautiful. Because it is, it's like the, ori- the original unedited you yeah. is informing. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you, and it was actually some questions that we had talked about before we uh, hit this recording, which is, what is something people have told you that you can't do? And how have you proved them wrong? I mean, like everything in the last 25 years of my career. Um, (laughs) If I take Tatcha specifically, Mm -hmm. um, when I first started out, um, every place I tried to raise money, the answer was no. But that's not uncommon. Less than 2% of VC dollars go to women in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm sure even less percent goes to women of color. Uh, When I tried to find retail partners, almost all of them said no. Only Space and K in the UK said yes at first. So that's why I love them so much. Space and K are very cool. They're very cool. Um, And people were very open. They said, you should abandon this idea because um, Asian beauty is not aspirational in the Western world. And I was like, well, at least you're being honest about how you feel. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, I was told consistently that... um, I didn't have what it takes to build this company. And then even after I did build the company and it was successful, um, I was told that I didn't have what it takes to continue to be a CEO. So I stepped down. Um, And then I was asked to come back two years later to turn it around. And so I think what that ultimately led to was an internalization of these messages. Mm. And now I know that that's called imposter syndrome. Um, at the time, I didn't know. I just really believed them. Mm. When I finally figured it out at the tender age of 43, uh, <laughs> finally, that inner voice again was like, oh, no, that's not that's not our burden to bear. And I put it down and let it go. 
And I've never felt lighter or more fully integrated as a person when I realized those messages have nothing to do with me. What other people think of you is none of your business. No. But it is hard in, in business if you are going to people for money, mm-hmm. like investment or whatever it might be, or someone has got more experience than you. And they say, no, no, this isn't, you, you don't fit. Um, it's really hard to argue with that because you kind of have to assume that they know because they've been around a lot longer. So how do you fight that? How do you think, well, I know that you've been around for a while, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going. <laughs> well, I did believe it, um, mm-hmm. but I, I kept going in, in be- the beginning because I had a really great mentor and I still do. His name is Tanaka-san. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is 76 now. He's one of my founding team members. And every day when I would drive home from work, um, he led our Japan team and actually still does. I would call him on my way home because it was morning time, Japan time. And I would tell him everything rough that happened that day and that I don't know how many times I said to him, I don't think I can do this. Mm. And he would listen. And then he would say, this is leadership. Finish what you started. And I love that because he didn't coddle me. He didn't assure me that I, I could do this, that I got what it takes. When he says, finish what you started, there's an assumption in there that I can. Mm. Um, so he's the one who didn't give me the permission to give up on myself. And then when I had to come back as CEO the second time around, um, someone said, don't put her back in the CEO. She doesn't have what it takes. Uh, this business is too complicated for her. Um, <laughs> she's intimidated by it. And the second time around, I thought, why don't I show you how it's done? Mm. Take a seat. Mm. <laughs> God, that's growth, isn't it? That's like growth. That's it, that is growth. It, but growth is never a walk in a rose garden, right? You, <laughs> you, you have to work for it. <laughs> Well, it, remember um, years ago, someone saying to me, my brother saying to me, um, there's a reason why caterpillars create a cocoon, yeah. a chrysalis, because they're screaming. <laughs> like, it hurts to become a butterfly. Like, I'm sure it does. You need a soundproof room, which we are currently in. But like, <laughs> if you like, change growing pains, they all really, really hurt. Yeah. So tell me about something else I'd be really interested to unpick mm-hmm. with you is how do you turn a no into a yes? Sounds like you probably faced a lot of no's on that journey. Many. <laughs> mm. So the weird thing about me is that no has never bothered me, but maybe it's because I've just heard it so much. As a woman of color in the U.S., nothing is really rolled out for you. And mm-hmm. so I, I think I got used to it. Um, my husband, for example, we met when we were 19. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time I asked him out, he said no. And I remember thinking, I, th- I think you misunderstood the question. <laughs> and two weeks later, I was like, did you want to go out? And for six months, I was like, do you want to go out? And I finally just wore him down. And he said, yes. And um, I remember thinking, oh, you just have to take Noah's call me next week. Um, so I reapplied that touring entrepreneurship. <laughs> I know there's um, Chris Kardashian, Chris Jenner, not Chris Kardashian, says, um, if, you, if someone's telling you no, you're speaking to the wrong person. And I've tried to, and I only heard that quite recently. And I keep kind of going around it going, but no. I don't get that. I don't really Mm. understand. Do you agree with that statement? Everybody who we have had success with now, with the exception of Space and KUK, said no to us in the beginning. Mm. Mm. Sometimes we were talking to the same person. Um, Sometimes it just wasn't the right time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I had to do a little bit more work to show that we were going to be the right partners, the right leaders, the right place for them to work. Um, but no, no sort of not, no, never. It's mm. not this, this second. Call back next week. Not right now. <laughs> yeah. No, is not right now. Yeah. So what is the most important thing that you've learned in your life? And it can be personal, professional, private, per, you know, yeah, emotional. The most important thing. Mm. <sighs> I'm only 44, so I have a lot to learn. Snap. Oh, thanks. I still have a lot to learn. But um, when I think back on my Tatcha journey, my family journey, my personal journey, I think about the th- what kept me going and where all the joy came from. What am I going to remember in the very end? It's always been human connection. Mm. And um, there's this word in Japanese, kizuna, and it literally means 
human bonds. And what we just went through with COVID the last three years, I think was such a wake-up call to remind us that we are we are community. We are we are only as good as the people who love us and that we love um everything that fills my life with purpose and joy is about human connection. Mm. And so that's that's what I value. It's what I seek. Um, that's my whole life now. How did you make sure that you remain connected during COVID when physical connection was impossible? Oh, well, I was CEO for a second time in my company, so I was sort of connected all the time <laughs> to everybody. Um I think what I started doing then was really focusing on quality of connection. Mm. So before that, you're busy, you're building a company, you're a mother, you're on the road. I stayed loosely in touch with the people that I love, but it was these little texts. Mm. Hey, how you doing? A little giffy here and there. Now I would actually book time to talk to people mm. and I would go and walk um, outside while I talk to them so that I'm not multitasking. Mm -hmm. I'm not letting anything else distract me. And I'm really focused on the connection and what we're sharing with each other, even if we only have 10 minutes to talk. Yeah, yeah. it's full attention, isn't it? Mm. And I would also like to find out if you live by a particular piece of advice or a motto. Mm. Yes. Is it a Japanese word? Ah, <laughs> there's, there's a few. There's a few. Um, I think I've been studying Zen for some time. And um, Zen is so deep and so big, but also so simple. Mm. And for me, it's boiled down to two principles. It's non-duality and impermanence. Non-duality means there's no good things or bad things. There's just things. Mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes, if you think of the worst things that ever happened to you, 9-11, um, they were necessary for the best things that happened to you. Tatcha, as mm -hmm. an example. And vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, and then impermanence just means that nothing lasts forever, the good things or the bad things. So the way that you make a moment last is to just live it fully in the moment. Mm -hmm. And these two things have really shifted how I look at everything in life and how I try to move through every moment of my life. I fail a lot at this, but I try as often as I can to stay in the moment and to realize um, – that whatever's going on, it's not a good thing or it's not a bad thing. It's just a thing. A thing. A thing, yeah. There's something, there's a weight that gets lifted when you shift your perspective to that. And there's um, a sense of, I guess, that sort of an exhale of, and I, ca I can't, there's no point gripping really tightly. Yeah, there's no point. Mm. So just enjoy the ride. <laughs> there's... Um, Cherry blossoms mm. are huge in Japan. They love them. It's the national flower, and they're gorgeous. But I didn't understand, like, why the cherry blossom, why is this such a big deal? And so I had gone for 10 years before I finally caught cherry blossom season. Uh -huh. And I was finally there at the, just the right time because, you know, it shifts every few weeks or every year, though it changes by week by week. And so I was sitting there with Tanaka-san, my mentor, finally, and we were under the cherry blossoms. And I was like, it is so beautiful, but like, why is it such a big deal? And he said, because we think it represents a perfect life. A cherry blossom life is a perfect life. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what does that mean? And he said, when a cherry blossom is a bud, it's like a young person. It's so full of potential. And then when it blooms, it doesn't bloom slowly. It's just like, boom, and, you know, I'm here. And so it's just living out loud <laughs> and, and I'm glorious. <laughs> but you also know that it's a very short bloom. Mm -hmm. And so you you know it's precious and you want to drink it in with your eyes and everything because it doesn't last very long. So you appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And then when it's time for it to end, it doesn't cling onto the branch and die all shriveled up and regretful. It lets go. It sets itself free and it floats through the air. And then when it's floating through the air, it's dying. But it's also having the time of its life. <laughs> and then when it's on the ground, it's beautiful and it's looking up at the sky and it's sort of like, that was the perfect life. And so I think it's this idea of, of being in full bloom mm. and then also just knowing this is it. It's not, it's not a practice run. So just enjoy it. Just enjoy the ride. 
I've never heard that story. I didn't know that that was the story of the cherry blossom, and I'm so glad I know it now. Oh, thanks. I love it. I should be repeating that verbatim to <laughs> as many people as I can. Maybe I'll live a cherry blossom life. Yes. Yes. Okay. So you are sitting in front of me today, though, as the founder of Tatcha, and you're obviously a visionary, incredibly hardworking, and very passionate. And I know we've gone through some of your story, but I'm curious to know how much of it has been by design, mm. how much of it has been fate, mm. and how much of it has just been lucky accident? 33, 33, 33, 1% other. Um, I still can't explain why I just quit one day and started traveling or why I went to Japan since I'm not Japanese. My family's from Taiwan. Um, how I ended up in Kyoto, uh, how I ended up at a gold leaf artisan's shop, how I ended up meeting geisha, all these things are highly improbable and, or improbable, and, and they happened. Mm. Um, how that moment turned into a, a company, now we're turning 13 soon, that wasn't happenstance. That was just showing up every day and putting one foot in front of another and just mm. choosing not to quit, mm-hmm, <laughs> just mm-hmm. finish what you started. Um, and then in terms of where we are now and the impact that we hope to have on our clients and our community, that is by design. Mm. Um, So when I set out with the company and my co-founders, we set out with a very clear purpose and values and mission in the beginning, and that has never changed. So a little bit of everything. That's good. (laughs) I guess that's a good balance because clearly it's working. Um, So, yeah. So one of the other things I wanted to unpick with you as well is about self-sabotage. Because we've touched a little bit on the fact that people told you no, that people said, well, we've talked about the things people said, which I don't like. I want their names and addresses after this. (laughs) But something I've definitely learned in my own life is that a lot of the time I thought the world is working against me, but I realized actually the thing that was in my way was me. And so... Are there any excuses that you've made that have held you back or made you feel stuck or essentially kept you where you were when you were trying to move forward? Is there Mm -hmm. anything that you realized, oh, I was putting an obstacle in my way and I didn't realize? Yes. The whole imposter syndrome thing. I was the one who made the choice to internalize the things that people were saying. People are going to say whatever they want to say, but it's your choice whether or not to pick it up or put it down. And Mm -hmm. I picked it up and I was like, yes, every criticism, every denial, everything. And I was like, yeah, give it to me. And I just held on to it like a treasure. Mm -hmm. And um, it shaped how I felt about myself. It shaped my self-worth. The first time around when I was CEO at Tatcha for the first decade, where we went from nothing to acquisition, I didn't even call myself CEO because I felt that I was unworthy. Um, I begged other people to take the title. Um, when investors would introduce other people of my team as CEO instead of me, I didn't correct them because I was too embarrassed because I thought they obviously think that because I'm not worthy. And then finally when someone said, I think you need to get a real CEO, I remember feeling gratitude because I thought, well, at least he's saying what everybody else is thinking. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Were you not giving yourself permission? Were you waiting for somebody else to give you permission to be CEO? I, I think that I really embraced the idea that feedback is a gift and mm-hmm. any feedback that people gave me, negative especially, I, I really embodied it mm-hmm. and I really internalized it. And the funny thing is if they gave me positive feedback, I was like, oh, no, 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 don't listen to that. <laughs> but if you give me negative feedback, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you for this gift. It's like a constant burden of work. Someone pays you a compliment. You think, well, that doesn't require any of my effort because I that's done. Mm-hmm. Someone gives you a neg- negative feedback. It's yeah. like, right, well, now I will take this on. I will spend a lot of time deconstructing it in my head. Yeah. And I will think of all of the ways in which I can correct that. Yeah. And that becomes a lot of work and it takes up a lot of mental real estate. It does. And I think as an Asian American woman, there's a a few other layers on top of it. Um, There's a few archetypes that we deal with. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you're either expected to be this model minority myth, you should be demure and humble and quiet and never um, challenging anyone, or you're a dragon lady. Mm-hmm. You're the geisha or the dragon lady. You you can't be a multidimensional leader in human who has opinions and <laughs> faults and and talents and you know mm-hmm. like any male leader. And so um, I remember just trying to make myself as small as possible, physically small. Like I I got down to 110 pounds, and um, I just thanked everybody all the time, and. Um, if they criticized me, I, I said, thank you. <laughs> and I remember towards the end when that voice started kicking up again, um, and I started speaking up for myself and advocating for myself, the feedback was swift. Mm-hmm. Dragon lady, ego, mm-hmm. bitch. Mm-hmm. And at first I was like, oh, no, not me. I'm the good Asian. Um, but then I sat with it and I did the work and I thought, Oh, Vicky, you're you're playing these characters, and it's tiring, and you don't have time for this anymore. It wasn't being authentic. You no. were making yourself smaller in order to fit into a place. But thank goodness there was something in you that was like, we need to take up some room here. Yeah, even pictures from that era. I'm always stooping. I'm not a mm. tall person. Why was I stooping? <laughs> I was physically trying to make myself small. It's so interesting. I... I saw a picture of me a few years ago. There's a picture of me with four people. We were all on a panel. And I looked like I had just sort of been plopped on the end. <laughs> I didn't look like it was a group of four people, but I was apologizing physically yeah. for my presence. It sounds like that same, was a similar thing. Same. It's tough. It is tough, tough, tough. What empowered you to overcome? I know we've got this voice, but if someone's listening to this and mm-hmm. they're thinking... A lot of what's, what Vicky is saying really resonates with my experience. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be small anymore. Mm-hmm. How, like, how do we help? How do we help the listener out? For me, I hit rock bottom. Um, so I hope that your listeners don't have to hit rock bottom before. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I saw something that I loved. This company that I built, I consider these people my family. Mm. Um, And then my own family is part of this company too. My husband works with me. I saw the whole thing starting to crumble on itself. And I saw it hurting the people who were in it, like really, really, really hurting them emotionally. Mm. Um, And then I know that we have a responsibility to fund girls' education globally. So when we don't do our job well, other people get hurt. And... um, the lioness in me came out Mm. and was like, you know what? (laughs) Hold my pearls. We're done with that. (laughs) And um, it just, it I just snapped Mm. in a good way. I think it sounds like a good snap. sounds like a great snap. It was, it was a round two of that voice coming out being like, I choose happiness. The second time it was like, I choose to lead and step into my power as a leader And do you think the fact that you chose happiness meant that even though it was rock bottom, there was a sense of, I know this feeling and I know, I know that actions required. So I have to move. Yeah. The other layer was there's been a huge wave of API hate Mm. in the US, um, thanks to people blaming Asian Americans for um, COVID. And so that means that attacks on Asian people, especially Asian women, were up huge, especially in San Francisco where I was living. Um, And I also have many, many Asian American women in my company. Um, I also have people telling my daughter that they hope that she and all Asian people die. I have my neighbor who um, screams and says, go back to where you came from. And he has a lot of guns. Oh, my gosh. This was all happening at the same time as going back to turn the company around and having... Men say she can't do it. She's not capable. And um, that lioness that came out, came out, I I remember actually, remember the the day it happened. Um, Eight Asian American women were shot to death in uh, a Korean um, massage salon, I think in Atlanta. Mm. And the media coverage of it suggested that they were sex workers. Oh. And nobody ever knew their names. Um, and then I was, as one of the very few 
Asian American CEOs and one of the very few Asian American women CEOs, I was asked in the U.S. media to comment and write essays about whether I've had any experiences of discrimination and hate and, um, and how my identity has impacted my lived experience. And until that moment, I, I never really thought about it. And then when I sat back and had to take inventory of not only how it's impacted me, but how it's impacting my employees who I feel um, protective of and my daughter and people in my community, I, I felt rage. Mm. And, but then I thought, I have to channel this passion into purpose. Sitting in rage doesn't help anybody. And so I worked really, really, really hard to just every time I felt that surge of fire, turn that fire into action that's going to make things better for people, not make things worse. But it was it was a pile of a whole bunch of stuff at the same time. Mm. It's interesting because I think sometimes we can internalize what the world is doing to us. So we can just assume you're a woman of color in the U.S., I have a really long, complicated surname, which is why I call myself Emma Guns. And it sometimes I can feel like that can work against me. Mm-hmm. So you kind of work around it, suppress mm-hmm. it. And you're just like, well, that's my situation. That's what I've got to deal with. And then something happens. And you're making excuses for other people when you're doing that. Mm-hmm. And then something happens and you think, I ain't making excuses for you anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like that's ex- sounds like that was the experience. But it really <laughs> it was a big experience. It was a big feeling. Yeah, it was. It was transformative. It was a, a fire that came up and consumed me, but transformed me. Mm. Um, so tell me about, I guess maybe it was this, but tell me about something you thought was a setback that actually turned out to be an opportunity for you. Oh, yeah. Um, after the first time I stepped down to CEO, my goal for Tatcha has always been to outlive me. My dream of it being a company that lives 100 years and that funds 100 million days of school for mm-hmm. girls around the world. And so I really believe that I built it for the long term. And then when I stepped away, uh, in the next two and a half years, the company in many ways began to crumble upon itself. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, this is a nightmare. I have poured everything into this company. I love this company and these people. This is a nightmare. When I came back and I assessed what happened to the company, I realized this is a gift because – I had a chance to see where I had not actually built it to last, Mm. and I got a chance to fix it. So if you imagine a company like a house, a house stands there long enough, an earthquake's going to come, a windstorm's going to come, things are going to happen to Mm. it. So I came back and I saw, okay, the foundation cracked here, the roof broke here, and it allowed me to really double down and think about how do you build a company to last, not just a Mm. company to grow, how do I build a company that outlasts me? And um, it also gave me a chance to show up as a leader in a completely different way, especially without the burden of imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. So that year that I came back the second time as CEO, transformed the company, transformed me. In the beginning, I thought it was the worst thing to happen. And now I think it was the best thing to happen. And I'm so grateful for it. Mm-hmm. You said there as well something about building a business that grows and building a business, business that lasts and the two being different. And as soon as you said that, I thought, I would just assume if I was growing all the time, great. But that doesn't mean longevity. No, no, (laughs) no. Growth growth can lead to success in the long term or it can break you. Mm. Yeah. What is the life lesson that you've had to learn the hard way? (sighs) The life lesson that I've had to learn the hard way. Mm. That's a really good question. It's mm. definitely thought provoking. Yeah, I'm sorry. Let me. I want to. I want to give you a really honest answer to that. Um, hmm. I think that I go to anger a lot. Um, You wouldn't expect it. People think that 
I'm very zen and Asian women are very, no, um, anger sort of my default mold. Mm -hmm. And I've had to really sit with where does the anger come from? And what I realized is that it's from, um, it's from trying to play a part. Um, and trying to play a part means being inauthentic to yourself, mm -hmm. um, reshaping your body to fit what you think other people are going to like, reshaping your personality. Um, and also for me personally, um, muzzling myself a lot. And so I used to think that I was angry at other things and other people and other situations. Ultimately, I had to sit back and realize, oh, no, I'm angry with myself because nobody's forcing me to muzzle myself. Nobody's forcing me to be inauthentic. I'm doing that. And it's exhausting. And I'm so glad I'm learning this right now because my daughter is about to turn 13. Mm. And I want her to stay wild and free and authentic, regardless of whether or not that fits the mold of society. Um, because I spent a really long time trying to to be something that people would love. Mm -hmm. And now, now I'm like, oh, and you know what? No, I'm just going to be me. <laughs> and I really hope that my daughter does the same. And I hope, I hope all people do the same. Mm. Anger is a really interesting one as well, because it's almost like a sugar high. If something happens, immediately switching to anger, it can feel justified. It's very empowering. It can feel good. Very, it fuels you. It gives you energy. And you know what? You know when you're angry around someone else and they go, you're so right. You're like, oh, it is. Yeah, there's a righteousness to it. Yeah. But actually, it's doesn't really get you far. <laughs> no. And when I did the work to let go of my anger, I will be completely honest that there was months where I would write in my journal, I miss my anger. <laughs> I miss her. She gave me so much energy. I got so much work done. Mm. I never got tired. I was fueled by anger for decades. Mm. And I don't have it anymore. And sometimes I miss it. What fuels you now? What's anger been replaced by? Joy. Lots and lots and lots of joy. And I think the biggest difference is in America, we have this saying about everybody has a right, you know, the, the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. And I think there's two things that are wrong with that statement. Pursuit means that it's something that has to be chased and it's it's always in the future, just, just away from your grasp. Mm -hmm. And happiness, it's funny, in Japan, they don't even really they don't really think about happiness because they think it's something ephemeral and light. Happiness is, is this temporary thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like chasing a butterfly. Joy is something deep. Mm -hmm. it's, it's almost, you know, it's, it's in your soul level. It's beyond the DNA level. And that's, that's a right. It's what you were born with. You don't have to chase it or pursue it. You just have to choose it in any moment. Mm -hmm. And so um, now I do the work of, of trying to, to choose and make joy as much as I can. That's so valuable. And I think as well with happiness, we can think if I get X, if I get Y, if I get this job, if I buy this house, mm -hmm. happiness will appear yeah. on the horizon yeah. one morning. And it's like, it's an inside job. You know, there's a fabulous study from a Stanford professor on happiness, and it's actually in a documentary called Happy. Have you heard about this? I feel like that's on my watch list. I feel I'll, like I I'll have summarize it. it for you. Mm -hmm. She said, basically, we've been studying depression for a long time. You can quantify depression. You can take quizzes to see how depressed you are, anxious you are. But we haven't taken happiness seriously. And so in her studies, what she found is that people are born with the general set point of happiness. Some people are a little higher. Some people are a little lower. But it's sticky. So you win the lottery, slightly happier, back. Mm -hmm. Something bad happens, sad, back. And so how do you, how do you change the set point of happiness? And I would say if it's a permanent change, it's joy. It's not just happiness. Mm -hmm. Happiness is temporary. And so she studied all of these different cultures that, that focus on happiness and have longevity. She studied Japan. She looked at Bhutan, which has like a gross national happiness index. And oh it, she boiled it down to like a few things scientifically. And one was connection to purpose, something bigger than yourself. One was connection to other people, community. And one was how often you stay in flow state. Mm. And that's this this being in the moment and finding mm. the joy in the moment. And so I think there's just a lot of, a lot of wisdom in that. Very much so. I'm so glad you shared that. I will be... Worth watching. Yeah, I will definitely watch that. You've talked about critics, mm -hmm. people criticizing you. Did you make excuses for those people? And did, when did you kind of look beyond those and think, actually, I'm going to stop making excuses for them and try to rationalize mm. 
how they're treating me and I'm just going to take it for what it is and I'm going to stop coddling them. <sighs> yes, of course I made excuses for them. And my excuse was, they're right. <laughs> I'm not good enough. Um, and then I thought, why did they do these things to me? Mm. These were people I was really good to. They were people that I respected and took care of and only ever helped. Why, why did they go out of their way to hurt me? Mm. And then, and then there was so there was you know the anger goes and then there's hurt. But then again, I meditated on it, and at the heart of a lot of this is um, core wounds. Everybody's got their own core wounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know how they move through their life because of their core wounds is you know that's their karma, and I'm I hope I wish them well on their journey. But then a lot of this also has to do with money. And the beauty industry is about a lot of money. Billions of it. <laughs> and when there's money involved, good people will do bad things. Mm-hmm. And so I had to really sit with that too. And finally what I realized is it's not my job to judge other people's relationship with money. Mm-hmm. And so just because money doesn't mean much to me and I would never go against my value system for money, I, for other people it it's – deeply tied to their sense of self-worth mm-hmm. and their their identity and their sense of safety. And while they might be fundamentally good people, they're willing to do very bad things if that means they can grab that extra dollar. Mm-hmm. And maybe it wasn't about me. Maybe it's not that they wanted to hurt me and it's not that they wanted to, to do things to me. They just, they needed that extra dollar f- for something much, much deeper mm-hmm. in themselves and that's their karma to deal with. That's not yeah. mine. I think there is something very empowering by when something happens like that, just saying that really is a them problem, yeah. and not a me problem. Yeah. And even though they might be trying to make it a me problem, yeah. I choose not to accept it as one. <laughs> My daughter always says, that's a YP, not an MP. That's a your problem, not a Y problem. <laughs> yeah. Can I steal that? Oh my God, yeah. what's her name? Alea. Alea. Right, I'm stealing that Alea. Sorry. Oh, my brother, that's my husband now. always gets it backwards. He's always like, that's a, that's a, my problem, not a your problem. I mean, what? <laughs> it's just Alea, so let's just let her have it. Um, how do you deal with conflict? Have you come up with a, a way to deal with it successfully? And I ask this because I think his, traditionally or historically when people make themselves quite small, yeah. they're risk averse, they avoid conflict. Mm-hmm. But then part of the growth that you've talked about, part yeah. of the transformation that you've made, I think probably has meant going into rooms and saying, and, and not necessarily starting a conflict, but disagreeing with somebody and saying, I disagree with you, we've got to get through it. For sure, mm-hmm. for sure. I spent the first decade of my CEO life um, trying to be the diplomat and accommodating Mm. everybody and making sure nobody thinks that I'm a bitch. Um, (laughs) Because who wants that? I'd rather be Geisha than Dragon Lady. Mm. Um, And so I did – I would do anything that it took to avoid conflict, including always starting off with my fault. Whatever I walk in a room, if there's mm. if there's conflict, I don't even know what people are fighting about, but it's my fault. So can we just <laughs> can we start there? Um, now I'm very 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 comfortable with conflict, but you start by depersonalizing it, which is I understand you feel this way, I understand you feel this way. There's facts, there's feelings. Let's get it all on the table, um, and none of it's personal. It's mm. never personal, even when it feels personal, it's not personal. Get it all out on the table. Yeah. What is it? Facts and feelings? I like that. Yeah, yeah. Facts are not feelings. <laughs> Don't believe everything you think. Yeah. That's really useful. Thank you. Yeah. Right. You've described or your story has been described as one of perseverance and rediscovery. Mm. I know we've covered a lot of ground, obviously, but what do you really mean by that? Perseverance and rediscovery. Well, the perseverance part is pretty easy. <laughs> mm. I sold my engagement ring to start the company. I worked four jobs. I worked about 100 hours a week. Traveled on the road for 250 days out of the year, and I didn't take a salary for nine years. That required a bit of perseverance. Um, In terms of rediscovery, I think what that journey that I took that started in Japan and turned into Tatcha, all it actually did was it just brought me back to myself, Mm. where I had to sit there with myself and say, all right, What's going on? Who are we? What do we believe in? What do we care about? What do we love? And do we love ourselves? Do we respect ourselves? 
are we willing to take care of ourselves mm. and be kind to ourselves? Um, so it was a, a long, great adventure that ultimately just brought me back to me. Mm. Um, selling the engagement ring, not yeah. taking a salary for nine years. That's something that um, everything I've read about you is in the first two paragraphs. Mm. So it's really significant. And I, when I was reading, every time I was going through my research, I was like, this is something that, this isn't just about the engagement ring. This isn't just about the salary. This is about, this is how much it meant to me that I was willing to do those things. So I, that's what I took mm. from it. Is that part of what you wanted to let people know with those things? Like, this is so important. This is important to me. This isn't just about yeah. a resume, the pretty resume that we talked about. This means everything. I think the reason I tell people that story so much is because I don't want them to read my story and think that I jumped from one gilded lily pad to the next and that um, it was easy and that I never made mistakes and that there was never a hard day because that would be a great disservice to people who are trying their best to make it. Mm -hmm. Whether they're a single mom working four jobs, whether they're an entrepreneur, whether they're somebody who's trying to lift them out or lift themselves out of you know the place that they were born in, I don't want them to look at my story and think, these are fairy tales that are not for me. Mm. My story is not a fairy tale. It was a grudge match. It was <laughs> it was a full-on mm. guerrilla warfare, hand-to-hand <laughs> -hand combat. And if I can do it, because I don't think that I'm smarter than the average bear, I don't think that I'm harder working, um, and, but it was hard. And so oftentimes, too, when people reach out to me for advice, they tell me that it's hard and they think that they're doing something wrong. Mm. And I'm like, oh, no, welcome to entrepreneurship. <laughs> I think what's really interesting about your story is that it has been such a, there has been a fight, there's been a battle, there's been all of these things, but you present now as a very peaceful, lighthearted <laughs> person. But that doesn't mean that it's got easy. It means that the way that you are dealing with all of those things, that's things that still exist, the challenges and what have you, are there, but it's you who's changed, not the challenge. Yeah. I mean, the challenges are still there. I Trust and believe. <laughs> the last three months were no easier than last three years. Mm -hmm. um, we're still in it. I'm still in it. But it goes back to those two principles of Zen. Mm -hmm. There's no good things. There's no bad things. There's just things. And none of it lasts forever. Everything's temporary. So well, enjoy the moment. <laughs> be, a, be a cherry blossom. Our time together has drawn to a close, but I this has been so, really wonderful. Thank I've you. I've so enjoyed this conversation, and I so appreciate you and the conversations that you are bringing to the community right now, because I think we need authentic conversations now more than ever. Thank you. I appreciate that. And um, I will obviously be putting the links to you, to Tatcha, to everything that we've all discussed in the show notes, but... Um, Come back. Next time you're in town, we shall go have back. a scone. We're going to have a scone. We're going to argue gonna... about whether you put the cream on first or the jam, but we're going to hang out. I'm going to put <laughs> beans on potatoes, and then we're going to put fat on it. It will be so good. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> Honestly, it's going to be a riot. But um, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Why not become a patron of The Emma Gunn Show today? For just £3 a month, you can enjoy episodes of the podcast ad-free and in video. That's just £3 less than a cup of coffee for a whole month of the show. Your support means I can keep creating the podcast and also invest in production and creation of bonus content for you to enjoy. To become a patron, all you have to do is head over to patreon.com forward slash The Emma Gunn Show now.